Hello once again, and thank you for choosing to download the Weekly Curio Podcast, a podcast that's weekly about curios. <laughs> yeah, furniture and stuff. I'm the Whip Theater's Tom Britton. And I'm College of Curiosity's Jeff Wagg. In addition to catchy slogans, we begin every week with the first half of our puzzle. Oh, I guess I should, like, find that. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, wait, here we go. Okay. If you go forwards, I am too heavy to lift. If you go backwards, I am not. What am I? Every week, every day on Facebook, you see something about science has found this, scientists yeah. prove that. This causes cancer. No, wait, this cures cancer. No, it only causes cancer in cats. Or yeah. well, It's always written with that terrible, like, things that cure cancer. Number seven will surprise yeah. you. Uh, I hate oh, I can't wait for that trend to die. Hopefully it's the Harlem Shake of headline <laughs> videos. Well, we want to point you towards a video. It, it, and the headline is, video explains why so many science scientific studies are basically bullcrap. Mm-hmm. That's the <laughs> Gizmodo headline. It's a very fun very educational little video, three, four minutes at the most. Yeah, you can watch it on the short. phone on the train without burning through your data. Yep. Absolutely wonderful. And I think it's important for people to understand the points they're making mm-hmm. and have them laid out. We can explain it over a podcast, but to visually lay that information out has power on some topics. No, you really need to watch it. Uh, it, it in science in America, we're taught facts. We're taught that water is H2O and that uh, gravity is a weak force, yet it's strong enough to pull you to the floor, blah, blah, blah. What we don't talk about is science, like how to do it and what the scientific method is. And one of the most powerful things is explained in this video. It is the, the double-blinded trial or the, uh, the clinical trial, as they call it, where you're isolating things because that's the problem. It's, you can do a trial, you can do a study, and say, hey, every time I lift up a can of Sprite, it hurts my arm. Does that mean that Sprite hurts your arm? And no, that's a correlation. That doesn't mean anything. You hurt Your, your arm hurts because you whacked it into the gate coming in here. I'm, I'm telling the truth, actually. <laughs> As it turns out, I don't have to make anything up. But yeah, no, seriously, uh, video is in the show notes. Watch it, and you will understand so much more about how science is done. A story near and dear to my heart. My daddy was a truck driver for mine years. Too. Yeah, mine too. Teamster. And truck drivers keep this country running. They keep it rolling. It's true, but you know, I just learned this. They didn't used to. I mean, obviously, we didn't have trucks in the 1700s, but even when we did have trucks, nobody actually thought of using them for transportation over long distances. I This blew me away. So the 1915 or whatever, cars are fairly common. You're not shocked to see one. And there are trucks, too. But people aren't using trucks the way we use them today. Trucks were seen as just something to move something from a warehouse to a train. And that was it. They did little 10-mile runs at the most. And the train was what we think of as the truck now. That's how you got all the merchandise any distance at all. Absolutely true. So if you have something in New York and you want to send it to Chicago... That drives out of the warehouse to a train, train goes to Chicago, gets onto another little truck, and then goes to the warehouse, and then to a delivery vehicle. Because of this, they built trucks different. They had solid tires. I mean, after all, you don't really care about comfort if it's a short run, so solid tires don't go flat. Rubber, you know, Goodyear had done a lot with uh, vulcanizing rubber. Rubber was kind of um, still experimental, though. It was kind of rough. It, it wasn't as flexible, and it Tires popped all the time. If you look at old cars, you'll see they often have two spares. There's a reason for that. Goodyear, being uh, an innovative company, 
came up with this thing called the Wingfoot Express. Now, where do they get the name Wingfoot from? Well, that's their logo. Right. It's Mercury. It's a Wingfoot. And what they did was they came out with a, a, a better quality of tire that was a uh, could handle trucks. It was an inflatable tire for trucks, which like today seems like, well, of course, this was an innovation. No one had ever considered this. So to prove it, they delivered goods across the country with these trucks. Now, here's where the other problem came in. No one ever thought about doing that, so it, the infrastructure wasn't there. The roads weren't there. The roads and the bridges. And when they went through Wyoming, I, I believe there were 71 bridges in Wyoming, they cracked through 50 of them. They had to rebuild 50 bridges. It took 30 days for this convoy of trucks to go across the country. But after they had figured it out, it was only five days back. Yeah, 30 days and 30 tires to get there. Yeah, right. And then that's it. I mean... Now that that was it. All it took was that one thing, and now well, it was a huge publicity stunt. Yeah, yeah it's when all the it drivers. Right. Also, the sleeping berth was invented. Yes, as a kid, I remember they playing to, in yeah. the sleeping berth of the tractor trailer of my dad's cab. Oh yeah. So the idea was two drivers working in shifts, which eventually yep. just became one driver on long haul would pull over and sleep in yeah. the berth of his cab. They invented the berth. They drove in shifts. They went all the way across country. Mm -hmm. When these two drivers got back, and the full support team with them. Yes. Two guys alone can't do it. Yeah. A convoy. I mean, people to build bridges behind you. Right. Engineers, you. people to help with the mechanics, etc. When they all get back, there's a brass band. Yep. Goodyear had like a dance squad in the article. Yeah, right. like the Goodyear yeah. cheerleaders or something. The Dallas Goodyear cheerleaders were out there. Yeah. The newspapers there, the press is there. This starts an arm race for various states to want to be a transit route. Yep. And so they begin to put money into infrastructure and fixing up the roads or building right. roads in some cases, repairing those bridges with an eye, with an eye towards the future of long-haul trucking being the lifeblood that it is today. Yes. And it's remarkable how quickly it goes from never done before to can't imagine living without it. It's true. And, it, and this was a major factor of this was in you know the early 1900s, the rail, if you weren't near the railroad, you were nowhere. You were just a dead little town. But hey, trucks can come here. So all you had to do was put in a gas station and beef up your bridges and suddenly you were a truck route. And if you look now, the, the truck stops, the, those are like the big places. Where the railroad, no one wants to live near the railroad. I mean, And these states that didn't have much else could compete for that infrastructure. Yeah. Little cities and little towns yep. that didn't have much else to offer in the way of natural resources for transit. If they could be first to market with a nice, new, clean road, yep, then absolutely. Goodyear is kind of the only people you have to appeal to initially. They start running th trucks through your town, and it's kind of the earlier you get in. The longer you do it, the longer they'll let you do it, becomes the right. motto for a lot of this yep. stuff. All, and all this was simply because they invented a stronger tire. That was it. Was Shakespeare an atheist? Slate.com gives us an article. I love the title. Much Ado About Nothingness. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's an examination, mostly from the book King Lear and the Gods, written by uh, Elton is the last name. Uh, it's a, a sort of a checklist of what makes a Renaissance skeptic. Mm -hmm. So the idea of atheism doesn't exist right. back then. But you certainly have, from ancient Grecian times at least, people questioning whether the gods exist, oh, or more commonly... Sure, they exist. Absolutely. Of course they exist. But are they interfering and intervening yeah. with our lives on a daily basis? Totally different question. And this deist idea that we get from our founding fathers here in the States becomes the earliest form of skepticism and the earliest form of or religious skepticism yeah. and atheism. The uh, Renaissance skeptic would be if you're denying divine providence, sort of the idea I just said, 
denying the immortality of the soul, counting mankind amongst beasts, which is heresy for a lot of sure, religions. Absolutely. Still denying God's role as creator of the universe, which is very close <laughs> to modern atheism. That's a yes. big one. Yeah. Attributing to nature what is properly the work of God. But, so yeah. if you think there's a natural explanation for, say, gravity, then then you are a Renaissance skeptic or an early sort of nodal atheist yeah. of sorts. And Lear makes that progression in the play. Mm-hmm. However, I know a lot of people who are religious who could write atheist characters quite well. Well, that's the thing. He's a, he's a playwright. He's writing about fiction. I mean, he wasn't Julius Caesar, but yet he, right. you know. So it's, it's really hard to say how can you prove that he was an atheist? But it is interesting to think about and, and share perspectives with Elizabethan England and just imagine what it was like to live there when the idea of an atheist didn't even mean anything. Well, and even today, just, in third world countries, the idea of an atheist is is unheard of. Right. It, just, it, it simply, it has to have, I guess, some wealth somewhere on the hierarchy of needs. Right. You need it to has have... to appear. Yeah. You need to be fed and, and have a decent life before you can even get to the luxury of being able to think about the nature I think you just things. don't question it. Right. You don't You know, whatever was told to you first, you go, yeah, yeah, that's great. Okay. That's how the world works. Now, how am I going to get some beans or rice in right. my belly by noon. And that's the thing. It, it, in the end, it doesn't really matter what you believe. It's how you behave. So, you know, if in Elizabethan England, um, Shakespeare believed in God but didn't care, it's like, okay, yeah, whatever, I have to write a play, then what's the difference between him being an atheist? He's acting as if he was. He, he, it, you know, there's no consequence that he's considering that I can tell. So, I don't know, it's interesting things to think about. It's a cool idea, too, to wonder how much... A character in a play reflects the heart and soul right. of the playwright. Because as a as a writer for the stage, I'd argue that there's always a piece of me in yeah, there. Yeah, has to be. But uh, one of the things during the big Colbert debacle was I, I I asked the question: Well, when does a racist character get to say racist things? Right. Otherwise, why do, why do I write a racist character if he's not allowed to be racist? Right. And say definitely racist things, or in his case, uh, yeah, racist, but I could also write a homophobic character. Right. Well, and I would hate to think that 300 years from now, uh, <laughs> that the work that survived yeah. was my homophobic character, yeah, and they assume that that's, that's me. Yeah, that I'm preaching from the stage right. rather than reflecting a, a person who existed in my time. That was like uh, just recently with um, Doogie Hauser. Uh, Neil Patrick Harris. Yeah, who's in The Angry Inch. Okay. And in character from the stage, he was interrupted during the show. Someone said, we love you, Neil. And in character, he responded to the person and and made bad words at him. And Twitter got all over this. Neil Patrick Harris shouts down. But Neil Patrick Harris explained later, it was in character. It was part of the production. It was part of the show. And the audience loved it. But yeah, 200 years later, someone could look over the text of this and say, look at Neil Patrick Harris had no respect for his audience, which is ridiculous. What you eat at the time of conceiving your child could have changed the child's DNA. If you're a woman. If you're a woman. That's a frightening idea. A mother's diet around the time of conception can, they should change that to might. Right. I'm going to change it. A mother's diet around the time (laughs) of conception might permanently influence our baby's DNA, research suggests. This is coming from lead scientist Dr. Branwen Hennig, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Hmm. Tropical Medicine because of where they did the studies. Right. 
but this idea that a mother's diet at the time the baby is even begun, yeah. like conception, can alter genetics. Now, do they count is the question. Because we see these genes being altered, but one, they don't know what the genes do. Right. And two, this is one study which seems to be rather renowned, but one study. Right. It's in just one, one part of the world. Of one population of one specific genetic type. And and the, the odd thing here is that at the time of conception, it's a sperm and an egg. If I have just informed you of something, I'm quite surprised. Spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. Um, but the genetics of the sperm and the egg are long established. Eggs are, are present in women, you know, dozens of years or whenever you get pregnant before the pregnancy. And in men, they've been there, you know, a couple weeks maybe. So what you eat that day shouldn't affect it. But it turns out somehow it looks like it does. It's not changing your genetic code. It's activating and deactivating genes. And you could think of an evolutionary reason for this. For example, you're living in a time of, uh, of bad food, you might want your baby to maybe store fat a different way or something like that. Well, there's evidence that peanut allergies, if the mother eats peanuts during yeah. pregnancy, it helps eliminate or lower the odds of a peanut allergy yes. forming in the child. Because the nature says, well, I guess peanuts live where you live. You should probably adapt to those. <laughs> Which makes sense. But, you know, we're just getting into the start of this idea that, yes, we all have a genetic code. And, yes, that genetic code determines who we are and much of our future but it can be turned on and off. I mean... And this is all new science. Remember, it was during yeah, the Clinton administration that they mapped the human genome. Right, right. This is not... So this is, this is new science for a lot of this. It's bleeding edge. When my parents, who are in their 70s now, went to high school, DNA hadn't been found yet. So this is all pretty damn new. But imagine you have the uh, genes for Tay-Sachs, and we can just turn them off. It's like, oh, yeah, you got those bad genes. We'll just turn them off. No worry. It's a tune-up. That, that's an insane, I mean, what a wonderful world, what a frightening world, what a sci-fi world ah, we yeah. live in. And, and, and if, you're, if you're a female thinking about getting pregnant, I feel for you because oh. this is just frightening yeah, information. Talk about pressure. Eat good all the time, every meal ever for the rest of your, your fertile years. Because you may get pregnant. You don't know, yeah. That's... And, and want to get pregnant, and then you're like, oh no, I had Taco Bell last week, this kid is screwed. If you want to live forever... You must drink the blood of the old. <laughs> okay, it's not exactly what the article no, says. No, not really. Hints no. to longevity found in blood of a 115-year-old woman. 115 years old. That's pretty old. She was born in the 1800s. Not a whole lot of them around. Yeah, no. born in 1890. Yeah. I'm not even going to try her name. I'm just going to... Uh, Mrs. Shipper. Yeah. That's the only one of those I could pronounce. Uh, she passed away in 2005. At 115, and was kind enough to leave her body to science. Yeah, which was a huge deal, because we don't get that. Oh, and often. I love a little old lady who's capable of doing that. Oh, you yeah. You know, of embracing the modern, because you yeah. know when she was born, the idea of having your body oh, desecrated God. by men in lab coats Absolutely. would have disgusted her parents. Absolutely. And during true. her lifetime, she was able to overcome that mm -hmm. prejudice, or maybe never embrace it. And in 2005, I said, no, no, I think it's important for you to study me. And now we're starting to get... The beginnings, again, the mm -hmm. beginnings of research is where this exciting stuff. This is the journal Genome Research. Ah, yes. What, how many subscribers Genome Research has? Uh, probably a few. Three, three, three or four very high-end universities <laughs> that pay a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, they, they're studying the mutations in shippers' white blood cells. Uh, sorry, I guess it's Andel Shipper is her last name. Yeah. A number of mutations 
but found all the mutations were harmless. So she likely had, quote, a superior system for repairing and aborting cells with dangerous mutations Mm -hmm. because her blood cells were made entirely by two stem cells. Yeah, and usually you've got a lot more than that. And that's aging. So it means that if we're going to fix aging on this level, at least, because I think aging like the common cold is a multi-front battle. Yeah, sure is. But gradually, less and less and less stem cells make white blood cells. Yeah. So she was down to two at 115, yeah. which means you know, that's how far you are from just, it's impossible to go right. beyond. So we have to harvest some when she's very young yeah, and give them saying. back to her later. You like take some and then keep them and then inject them back to yourself. And keep them alive. For yeah. like you yeah. know, 50, 60, 80 years later, whatever. To keep um, that number producing at its height. And you know where they would get that from is from uh, probably from cord blood. Do you know about the cord blood yeah. thing with babies? So, you know, the blood that's in the umbilical cord is weird blood. And uh, many times they'll ask parents to save this because there are stem cells in there that they can never get again. Those are unique and could be used to cure diseases in the future. Eh, the, the debate is over whether it's worth doing that or not, it, it financially may not be worth. I think it costs like $7,500 to do it. So they've started examining but, her blood. Yeah. Next, they're going to find out how she avoided Alzheimer's. Yeah. So at 115 years old, by comparing her genome with those of people with the disease, mm-hmm. hoping that the difference between the two gives some research, some indication into not just the cause of Alzheimer's on a base level, but also how do you avoid getting it? It's a frightening disease for anyone who's ever Absolutely. dealt with it. And this woman was 63 and then lived another... Uh, well, I'm sorry. She was 53 and then lived another... What was she? Was, <laughs> let me do some math here. 115, right? Yes. So, so 57-ish, 57 and a half, and then she lived another... 57 and a half years. I mean, think about that. When you're 57 and a half, you're slowing down a little bit, thinking about retirement. No, she was just halfway. That, that's her I, middle age. Right. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I just can't even, I can't even relate to being that old. And the changes that the world went through in her lifetime alone. I mean, the memory she had as a little girl. Three years before the Columbian ex- exhibition of, 16, of 1893, she saw cars, planes. She saw the, the Wright brothers, as an adult, saw the Wright brothers to the moon landing. And then lived another 50 years. (laughs) And was kind enough to donate her body to science so that she's continuing to participate in the entire world, arguably in an even more important capacity. Because if it's her blood that cracks the code to longevity, we will name interstates after her. Absolutely. My hat, which I don't wear, is off to her. We've discovered a unique mineral in Australia. Again, I'm saying we. I want credit for it. Yeah, yeah. We just did it yesterday. We, we, the royal we. Uh, Popular Science brings us an article. A beautiful, beautiful crystal putnacite. Yeah. Imagine, uh, so amethyst, that's the purple crystal that you see for sale in rock shops. It's fairly inexpensive. Imagine that with kind of this glowy blue luster. I mean, this is a really beautiful thing. And they just discovered it. No one had ever found it before. Now, new minerals are found fairly often, but they're usually modifications of ones we know about. This is completely new. This would be like finding a new mammal in New York City, uh, you know, that had six arms and two heads. It's, it's like a whole new thing. They're making a big deal. It contains strontium, calcium, chromium, sulfur, carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen. And that apparently is an unusual combination. Yeah, that's that's it. Those from what I little bit I know about geology, those things do not often exist together. And yet here they are. And then while dozens of new minerals are discovered each year, 
it's rare to find one unrelated to already known substances. Yeah. So this is a brand new beast. Yeah, it's completely new. You, you can go to little towns in middle America and they say, well, this is the only place in the world where you can find andersonite. Well, okay, but andersonite or whatever mineral you want is slightly different than some other mineral two counties over. It has a slightly different proportion of chemicals. This is a whole new combination of chemicals. That is a very rare thing. For those of you into this kind of thing, it appears a tiny semi-cubic crystals is often found like within quartz. Putting aside is relatively soft with a Mons hardness Mose. of mm-hmm. Mose, mm-hmm. Mose hardness of 1.5 to 2, comparable to gypsum and brittle. Yeah, this is re- you could easily crush this in your fingers. This is uh, super, super soft. So the Mohs scale, you start at zero and you go up to, I think, nine for diamond. And this is way down the bottom, way, way down. Here's the exciting part. Unclear yet if the mineral could have any commercial applications. Yeah, they don't know. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, oh, here's a new combination. How can we exploit this? That, that's what happened in Death Valley in the late 1800s is they went out there for the first time and survived and found all these crystals growing. On, there were just crystals laying around on the f- desert floor, and they found out that they were useful for something, and that thing was borax. And they, a wall board that we have in our homes now came from these crystals and soap and uh, you know all that. So if there is a use for this, they will find it. We bring you our continuing series of things we were incorrect about. Wrong! Uh, this week, did you know... The signing of the United States Declaration of Independence did not occur on July 4th of 1776. I, I did because I read it. Yeah, of course of course it didn't. In that day, can you imagine getting everyone into one room? Yeah. Horse buggies and cholera all over the place. A thousand miles apart in some cases, right? Yeah, the final language of the document was approved by the Second Continental Congress on that date. And it was uh, uh, printed and distributed July 4th and 5th. So to Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, both who died on 4th of July. Right, that's correct. That was an important date for both of them. In fact, uh, there are some apocryphal uh, reports that Jefferson knew he might give out any moment and wished to be alive on July 4th. Mm -hmm. And on that day, he said, well, now only Adams survives me, not knowing that Adams Adams had died died. an hour or so before. no, it, uh, the actual signing, and this is not a date that's important in the States, by the way, for our foreign listeners, uh, August 2nd, 1776. Yeah, right. That's the day we officially declared yeah. things. That's that's what we call a work day here. I mean, we, <laughs> nothing <laughs> happens that day. Elephants, the elephant graveyard. You saw it in the Lion King, right? There's this elephant graveyard. Where the hyenas live. Yeah, the hyenas hang out there. No. No, the elephant elephants die and get eaten very quickly by things in in I almost said the jungle. Oh God. Also, hyenas don't sing. No, they don't sing. No. <laughs> so so here's my theory as to what's going on with elephants. So um, you know, you're in Africa, you're in the Serengeti, whatever, and you see there's like a little piece of zebra over here and there's an antelope over here. Well, those are prey animals. Elephants aren't prey animals. They're too darn big. Nothing hunts them. But uh, they do die, of course, and then when they do die, they're eaten. But it's just not common to see dead elephants like it is zebras or antelopes or news or wildebeest or whatever. So, no, no elephant's graveyard. Sorry, you can't go there. Thank you very much for spending some time with us this week. We hope you were amused and slightly educated. Maybe a little. Or very educated and slightly amused. That's okay, too. We'll take either one. <laughs> yeah. Until next week, I'm the Whip Theater's Tom Britton. And I'm College of Curiosity's Jeff Wagg. All that remains is the answer to the weekly puzzle. So if you go... F- 
Yeah, I'm sorry. Damn. If you go forwards, I am too heavy to lift. If you go backwards, I am not. What am I? I am the word ton. And, all right. <laughs> uh, it can't all be good. <laughs>